0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. It is Thursday, January 11th, 2024. What a difference a year makes. This time last year, I'm in Munich at the DLD conference, this time last year. I sat down with my friend Azim Azhar, one of the world's leading authorities on technology, uh, on uh, exponential technology in particular. We talked about the forthcoming year. We didn't imagine, Azim, that 2023 would work out as the year of generative AI and of chat GPT 3.5 and 4. Did we Do you remember last year?
1: Uh, we had just started to use uh, chat GPT uh, in in January 2023 and I think I had spoken to you a little bit uh, about it back, back then and I had run some experiments and been quite impressed with it but it had only been out about six weeks uh, back then. And I don't think we could have predicted quite what it would have triggered. I mean, I, I call it the little chat bot that could, or the year of chaos uh, of, uh, of generative AI, which is certainly what we we saw and have seen.
0: There's a God out there, as Yemi might have read, the exponential view, because doesn't this manifest all your theories on exponential technology?
1: It's definitely been an, a, a fast, uh, Sorry, I have to do that one again. Um, I mean, it's definitely been uh, an accelerated year and it's probably been an ex- exponential year. I mean, ChatGPT got to 100 million users faster than nearly any other product, although it was then in true exponential fashion overtaken by threads from Instagram a few months later. But but one key thing to no- notice is that uh, OpenAI ended 2023 uh, with revenues at a run rate of 1.8 billion dollars per year, half of which was coming from businesses and half of which was coming from people like me who pay for chat GPT uh, personally. And that, I think, does sum up the speed with which these these things can move. And I would just also point to the fact that Microsoft and Google
2: both rolled out uh, various different types of Uh, and so on and if you're uh, a google slides or google worksheet user you can have a similar
1: generative ai assistant alongside and it's remarkable that large slow moving firms can can do that inside of a year
0: my wife works for google uh uh azim so uh, i'm going to tell her you call google a slow moving firm. you please do tell her. Uh, yeah. microsoft and google aren't really that slow moving are they especially microsoft in terms of its relationship with ai particularly in the context of the the 2023 melodrama, the corporate melodrama, which Microsoft played a a more than walk-on role.
1: Well, I think we learned that uh, generative AI will cost jobs. The first of which was Sam Altman's, uh, but he got it back uh, a few days not that he needs, later. <laughs> not that Sam Altman needs. He doesn't. He doesn't need a job. No, I think Microsoft has. I think Microsoft has really demonstrated under Satya's leadership that you can be a big, complicated firm with large customers who are very demanding and probably quite slow moving, and still take dynamic, strategic choices. The relationship with OpenAI goes back a few years. And so they started to make that bet early. But I think there is a lesson for other bosses, which is that if you look at who was involved in that relationship, it was uh, the CTO of Microsoft who works directly for Satya. It was Satya, the CEO. I mean, it was really the top tier. This wasn't something that filtered in through a corporate development team or a business development team. And and I think large companies can, can start to take some sort of lesson from that which is if you want to get something done really quickly and it involves something as significant as a technology transition it's got to be driven from the top.
0: Was this the glory year for Satya? Certainly uh, at the time of the drama there were a lot of contrasts being made by commentators between the speed of his behaviour and reaction and the slowness of of Google.
1: Yeah I think it's uh, demonstrating that Satya is very, very thoughtful and is willing to take some measured risks. More than
0: thoughtful. He thinks quick. I mean, anyone could be thoughtful.
1: Well, okay, you're right. He does think really quickly. Uh, But I don't don't think this was necessarily the glory year because that would suggest that, you know, he can't do a a Bjorn Borg and come back next year and and do even better. Um, And so 24, 25, I think they still have opportunities as Microsoft uh, to really, really shine. And I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say uh, next week in, in Davos he's got obviously he's there's a discussion between uh, him and sam altman that uh, that i'll be able to observe and and just hear how they are thinking about the next 12 months because i'm sure that this wasn't his swan song by any means
0: we'll, we'll get to 2024 in a few minutes uh i haven't heard uh, uh satya and nadella being compared with um uh, with bjorn borg but if he's than then uh, Altman's McEnroe, isn't it?
1: Quite possibly, yeah. Uh, well,
0: I mean, genius. Actually, ge- everyone either loves or hates him. A man who it's impossible to have uh, to be indifferent toward.
1: It, he's a very, very interesting character. Actually, I, in, I interviewed him in May when he came through London. We did a little TV show, uh, and it, I I had noticed that he was certainly a lot more polished than the last time I'd spent a couple of hours with him, which was, I think, just at the start of the COVID pandemic. Um, And that obviously comes with the different uh, stature that he now has. Are you
0: suggesting he was pre-COVID unpolished as in?
1: Not unpolished, but I think he was a bit less guarded in a a sense. And, uh, you know, of course, what's happened in that two or three year period is that OpenAI has gone from a, a research lab of 150 people to the most important technology company on the planet, he's had to spend a lot of time giving evidence and talking to people. He's had two more years to do lots and lots of thinking. So I found him slightly uh, less penetrable uh, in uh, in May twenty twenty three than I had three years earlier.
0: Do you think that for Sam Altman in twenty twenty three it was really a, a whirlwind year for just doing PR? He seems astonishingly accessible. I mean, you run an important TV show. He was on yours, but he was on many other people's shows too. He certainly was way more visible than the other titans of tech from Bezos to Musk to, 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 to the Google founder.
1: I think that one of the things that Sam uh, understood and understands is that this technology is going to uh, rub up against people's instincts about what the role of technology is and where the boundary between that and humanity uh, it is. And so I think his efforts to um, go out and talk to people, go out and also listen to people, he, he did a listening tour uh, as well, were testament to him wanting to get ahead of those issues. Now, I don't think those that necessarily means we can sit back and relax and say, "Oh, well, Sam understands these tensions, so we can just let him get on with it." But I think we can at least say that he was trying to get, you know, in front of in front of them. That doesn't absolve him, by the way, from any scrutiny, which we should absolutely, of course, give him. He must have uh, spent a lot of time on private jets uh, in in 2023. is would be my <laughs> final conclusion.
0: As in. When the smoke clears, and it's hard to know when it will, what really happened with AI in 2023? How much of it is froth? How much of it is, is the promise of technology which has never realized the kind of hysteria of this is going to change everything and then it turns out it doesn't change a great deal? Did anything uh, beyond the fact that it was headlines all the time and a lot of people are using this, it doesn't seem to have changed that many people's lives yet, what concretely in an exponential sense happened in 2023 in terms of ai
1: well uh, you know you framed that question so well uh, andrew I, in 2023 we saw large language models cross what's known as the uncanny valley that moment where uh, where they start to feel extremely persuasive and extremely na- natural. Um, and I do think there is a time before ChatGPT and a time after ChatGPT. In my own behaviour now, my starting point for queries um, that I that I have is no longer Google. It's a service called Perplexity, which uses a large language model and also accesses GPT-4 uh, a- a- as well. And I use ChatGPT. More extensively than I use so Google this or Wikipedia. Perplexity
0: is a search product.
1: Perplexity is a question and answer product. So you can put in a question. The one I one I did last week was, um, you know, my I live in North London. Gold
0: uh, is green.
1: Gold is green. My garden is consistently flooded. What types of plants could I use if I'm going to plant low maintenance borders to try to absorb some of this water and it came back with a set of very good answers very quickly which I was then able to to query further so perplexity is now my starting point for my search behavior that we and that used to be google um, it, with with chat GPT I've i I use it daily in my research um,
2: needs but I have also just which is a DJ
1: assistant. So I can go in and say, here are the tracks I've put together and here is their, their BPM and their key. Please suggest 20 or 30 others that might go well in this set. And it will go off and do that and it'll ask me discovery questions and it will give me these tracks. I can then go off and pop them into Spotify and see if they fit. So for the, my behavior has already started to change. I tend to be an early adopter of these things. Um, but we should recognize that Amara's Law we always overestimate what happens in the short term and underestimate what happens in the long is almost like a law of physics for technology. Uh, So we're just in the foothills right now.
0: My skepticism Mm -hmm. when it comes to products like perplexity is that had I gone as I I did actually with ChatGPT, about 3.5 and four, last five and four last month and asked it, what was the most important event of 2023? It had no knowledge of uh, the events in October in Israel mm-hmm. and Gaza because it hadn't been updated. Yeah. So my question about something like Perplexity is all very well asking about your garden, but if you wanted to ask about something that happened in 2023, it it, it wouldn't have the answer.
1: Well, ChatGPT doesn't, but Perplexity is. Uh, so it's not uh,
0: driven. So Perplexity is not driven by ChatGPT.
1: Uh, no they they use Gpt4 as well but they have their own large language model and their own real-time index so it's I would I, I, I think it's probably updated every few seconds uh, and so you can ask it about the latest news and I will often um, if
2: I've got a meeting with a uh, you know a client and it's in an industry that I'm And why do they matter, and I will query it, and it will have
1: news stories, research papers uh, and, and so on and so it's very distinct as a use to chat GPT, which, as you say, can be three or four months out of date or sometimes longer.
0: If I use perplexity as the, this interview would probably be better, what c- kinds of questions might it encourage me to ask you? I think
1: it would ask questions like um, you know what will we see from?" actual corporate adoption in 2024 should we be disappointed that we're not really seeing this in the productivity statistics yet Uh, you know when when does that rubber actually hit hit the road and i think there are some really really interesting things happening there
0: you've just made me redundant (laughs) no you'll never be
1: you'll never be redundant yeah uh,
0: in my own dreams anyway so let's talk about 2024 and, and as you said the obvious question is the rubber meeting the road, the old cliche in Silicon Valley. It's all very well talking about these things. But when will we begin to see profound change? Is it gonna be in twenty four?
1: Profound is a big word. Uh well, to significant use. that let's,
0: ordinary people who don't go to DLD would understand.
1: Yeah, well let's uh, let me give you two numbers. Uh six percent and ninety two percent. So in um, the summer of twenty twenty three, uh Tom uh, Davenport, who's a professor at Babson College, uh, released a, uh, a report on the use of generative AI in large companies, and he surveyed about 400 chief digital officers. Six percent of them said we have a use of a use case, an application using generative AI in production at scale in our in production at scale in our organization. Six percent. In October 23. OpenAI announced that 92% of the Fortune 500 had signed up for its developer program. Uh, And what you're seeing there is the gap between the early adopters, 6%, and the 92% groundswell, who have been starting to getting their ducks in the row to build using this technology. And the the question for my mind is not will we get to 92%, but how quickly will 6 become 92? I don't think 6 will become 92 in 24, 2024 because it just takes too long in large companies you know it takes everything is done in quarters right so it's three quarters to get anywhere but we are not we're f- so much further away than we were say with cloud computing when even four or five years after aws amazon web services was was released uh, 15 years or so ago you were not getting it anywhere near 90 percent of the fortune 500 experimenting on cloud they are experimenting with uh, large language models and specifically open ais Uh, and i think that means that you will start to see a a swarm uh, of applications at the back half of 2024 and into 2025.
0: is all the innovation Azim in the us on the west coast in particular in china you're based in north Mm -hmm. london but you're global in your perspective in your perplexity. Um, The Europeans are very good at regulation. We're at DLD. A lot of the sessions are about regulation. I'm actually moderating one tomorrow on it. Um, Is there much innovation on the AI front coming out of Europe?
1: Well, there's DeepMind, um, which which is is owned by Google, of course, and is in the UK, uh, which is you know in politically no longer in Europe, I guess in that in that sense. Uh, You know, there's there is stuff coming out of uh, France. So you have um, Mistral, which is a a French um, startup,
2: and Mistral is building. Uh, open source models that are out there they are the quality of gpt 3.5 which is
1: incredible but still far below gpt4 and and i think that what you can do with with that sort of open source research is you can absolutely uh, imagine an ecosystem building around it uh, and of course today if you want to use gpt4 or a large language model you have to access it over the cloud but what tools like Mistral will ultimately allow us to do is put these large language models uh, you know, on our phones. And in fact, I have them running on my laptop, so not on my phone yet. And, uh, uh, and uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I was coming back from Paris on the Eurostar and didn't have reliable internet, but I could continue to do some of my research work because I had uh, the, the, a large language model running locally On my my laptop. So I I, I don't think we can say Europe is doing nothing, I I don't think we can say there aren't really great technologies coming out here, but if we imagine the path of these technologies and I don't think large language models in that sense are vastly different to the cloud or vastly different to databases, the center of gravity uh, is still uh, sitting around Silicon Valley.
0: And what about when it comes to the regulation front? is that what the one thing that Europe seems innovative, good at for better or worse?
1: Well what is it to lead on on regulation and what is it to lead um, on on you know the control of these these systems? and I, I think that we spend a bit too much time um, we spend a bit too much time trumpeting our successes in this field in in Europe there are important steps being taken because we have a different outlook. Uh, it is not so laissez-faire. So I think notions like bots would have to identify themselves as a human, which is part of some of the measures that... Uh, sorry, bots would have to identify themselves as bots rather than as humans. That
0: was a Freudian. Yeah, that was a
1: fraud. You know, yeah, yeah. Was a fraud. It's, it's part of the measures that the, uh, the EU is, is pushing. Those things actually do matter. But I do think that the balance is... Um, is perhaps in the narrative is not is not quite right yet. I would rather there be. Um, we can have both conversations in Europe. We can talk about the innovation and we can talk about the importance of um, inclusive regulation and pro-social outcomes from the technology.
0: In other words, Europeans can chew gum and walk at the same time.
1: We can. I have confidence that that is possible, even if. Well, you really don't seem
0: <laughs> yeah. entirely convinced or it might surprise some people, especially on the tech front. Finally, Azim, a couple of questions on 2024. What would you like to see happen that probably won't
1: <laughs> well, on, on the AI front? OK, so I, I mean, on the AI front, what I'd like to see is um, the some of the debate has become incredibly divided, polarised and nasty around um, the use of large language models, the progression of AI development. There are many camps splitting off and it's becoming quite vituperative and a bit unpleasant. And there is a point where we, we disagree and you get generative disagreements that move things forward. But right now it feels like there's a lot of grandstanding and a little bit of nastiness, which I think tends to push, push people, put people off and push people away. So I would like there to be a little bit more civility uh, in the dialogue. The second thing I would like is a focus to move away from this notion of the P doom, the probability that machines will kill us all in any short period, short order. The
0: existential scenario. The
1: existential scenario because I think it is sucking the oxygen out of the room and I think that it is about in at some level is about forcing through a particular type of political doctrine which is a um an ultra utilitarianism but without going through the normal political process which is that we either have a revolution or we vote for it uh, and we you know we voted for for um supply sidism in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, um, it didn't sneak on, a, on us uh, through uh, regulatory capture. And, and I, I sort of would like that debate to be toned down a little bit so we can have a, um, you know, a more measured, more evidence-driven uh, discussion about how we make these, ensure these technologies are explainable and safe.
0: Speaking of measured, reasonable conversation, Azim, what happens if Trump is re-elected in 2024, does that change everything? When it comes, leaving aside the broader political dimension, when it comes to tech, um,
1: yeah, you know, I, I don't know enough about his uh, his policies with respect to. Um, which may be
0: saying so. I mean, he probably doesn't know himself.
1: No, but but I th- I think we can. What we can say is that um, what we we saw previously, which was. Um, You know, very much a kind of isolationist mindset, quite an aggressive mindset towards uh, anyone he perceived as a as a geopolitical rival, um, would might start to play its way out again. I would imagine that some of the efforts that Lena Khan has um, started to push forward in the at the FTC uh, around looking at new ways of regulating the scale of of some of
2: the big tech in the US, those might uh, change. Uh, liberal, rights-oriented, um, you, know, wor-
1: you know, workforces of the technology companies were able to orient themselves as slightly as a kind of bastion against some of the things that he he said. But it seems to me that the culture war in the US has moved on and, uh, uh, since then. And I'm not sure that it wouldn't create a really fragmented and fractured uh, in- environment. And, and sometimes, you know, it makes me a little bit relieved that I sit in the bucolic rambling suburbia that is gold green
0: and China given Trump's overt hostility Biden in many ways has pursued a Trumpian position when it comes to chips and trade policy could you are you concerned that that these countries are not just geopolitical rivals but AI rivals
1: well I think they are clearly rivals in many many domains um, and but we know also know that the world is incredibly interconnected and incredibly complex and Chinese scholars and uh, Chinese uh, uh, policymakers and politicians are still willing to and turning up to these conventions as we saw at the um, AI safety summit at Bletchley Park in, in the UK. So so again I would, I would try to um, you know avoid uh painting cataclysmic scenarios other than to say it's really important that we you know maintain dialogue but I would also expect as a long it's been decades since I studied international relations and international politics but um, you know we, we also know that opportunism does strike and what you do start to see at the moment is that the US is feels like it's stretched, it's stretched because of the Middle East, it's stretched because of its domestic politics, it's stretched because of Ukraine. Um, it will be consumed with what happens domestically uh, in the run-up to the election and thereafter. And, and that, what that does is that creates opportunities uh, for, for strategic rivals to, to play their adversarial cards a little bit. So I, you know, I, I don't think it's sort of smooth sailing.
0: Certainly won't be and um, we can't keep on meeting like this as that though we probably will. We met in January 2023 in Munich, it's January 2024 in Munich, January 2025 in Munich. It's of course all built around DLD. Finally, what's the value of global events? And, and, and DLD is uniquely global and it brings Europeans, many people from the US and from, from East Asia together. What's the value of events like DLD to you?
1: you know the value is just comes from dialogue and it comes from listening uh i you know most of my time in at dld i'm not doing this i'm actually spending much more time listening to the people i am talking to uh so that i can understand their perspectives uh, as well and and i think that you know bringing people together in that way does exactly that and allows us to sensitize ourselves to the fact that other people think about the world and see it differently but equally legitimately to the ways uh, that we experience it.
0: It's the Yossi Vardy effect. There you are. Azeem Thank is, you very much. Uh, uh, Azim, you better go up and, and talk. Enough talking to Cameron
2: and do, do your real business at DLD and go and talk to the people. Thanks very much, Andrew.